Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. And today I'm here with Susan Kirtley, who is the author of Typical Girls, The Rhetoric of Womanhood in Comic Strips. Susan, thanks for being here with me today. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, I'm hoping you can start out by talking a bit about how this book came to be, um, your interest in comics and womanhood um, and female comic strip um, artists and how this book came about. Well, this was a a very uh, personal project for me. I think uh, for me, I talk a little bit about this in the book. Uh, reading the newspaper was very much, uh, you know, a ritual in my family. We would, you know, someone would go down the driveway and pick up our newspapers. We got two and it was very exciting. And uh, we, we would parse them out to members of the family and we would read the newspaper. And I was very excited when I would get my turn with the comics pages. And I I loved reading the comics and I had a hierarchy. I would start with my favorites and then I would read the other strips. And it was just a really important part of my childhood and my maturation. Uh, I, I fear this ritual might be fading with the, you know, uh, newspapers. Uh, but I, I really was an important part of my um maturation. And, you know, as a, as a young girl, I was looking to popular culture to tell me about, you know, the roles of women. And so I was, and then I would rebel against them. Uh, But, you know, I was told that, you know, girls don't read comic books. So I'd read comic books. And I was looking to these comic strips, these sort of daily rituals, these little micro narratives about what it was to be female. And so these were very informative for me. And so this was, uh, this project was an opportunity for me to go back to those comic strips and uh, really study them and, and looking at them through this lens of um, these constructions, these narratives of gender identity, and sort of looking closely at those um, with some distance to think about what are the messages um, that were being told at the time. Yeah, I I have to say I loved that sort of beginning and reading that because I too was a child who, you know, sat with my dad and parsed out the paper and the two I cared about were the sports section and then like the comics, right? And we, Uh he and I would read the comics together. Uh, And so that just reminded me of that ritual that I don't have anymore, right? That you do. Uh Um, But it reminded me of that and how like how much that inspired, you know, how much I look forward to that on a daily basis. So you have divided this into um, sort of you've sectioned it off by authors or, or artists, right, and looking at different women at a certain time period. So can you talk a bit about how you came to choose the um, comic book artists you looked or the comic strip artists you looked at and the yep. time period sort of in time frame you looked at? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, I, I first want to acknowledge this is, you know, this is a, you know, a small project in a much, you know, larger universe of comic strips. And I hope that it will inspire and encourage additional academic study. I think it, comic strips are in general, um, understudied for many reasons, but, um, you know, this is just a beginning and I have a fairly, uh, you know, a narrow focus and lens because I'm, I'm focusing primarily, well, entirely on these, um, comic strips created by women. Uh, and so I was looking at the, uh, comic strips created by women from this period of around 1978 to 2010 and, or, you know, some went on a bit longer and, um, 
there were other comic strips in, you know, different papers, but these are the ones that were nationally syndicated. And some were syndicated and were seen in the mainstream newspapers and some were in the alternative weeklies. But uh, I was looking at the ones with so something of a wider reach. Um, and that's that's how I chose. Um, I I think, and also because you you have to have an endpoint with these projects, but there's a lot more read, you know, a lot more research to be done. And I also, you know, in the opening of the book, I I tried to um, look at, you know, a, a, a typical page from I chose the year 1984 because I wanted to express that, you know, I'm looking at a few different strips and artists, um, but there was a much larger landscape of the comics page. And I think it's important to think about how they fit into the comics page. And so uh, I particularly, you know, focused on these strips created by women. But when I looked at this page from 1984, there were 33 strips and only three were, were by women. Uh, and so I, I wanted to set the tone that, yes, I'm looking at this small sampling, but there is a much larger landscape. So it was definitely, I wanted to focus on women writing their stories and, and, and that's, that's kind of the lens I was, I was looking through. And before we get into sort of talking about the comic strips you looked at and the artists that you looked at, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about sort of what you saw or, or how you see sort of comic strips um, framed or the conservative nature. Maybe that's the way to to frame it um, that you sort of talk about that you saw in comics and in sort of historically with comics. Well, I think, you know, as part of the newspaper, the, they occupy this interesting place, comic strips. Um, and I, again, I wanted, I wanted to think about that in, in terms of the analysis, because they're in the mainstream newspapers. Uh, and, and there are choices that editors make about which strips they will choose. And, the, and they're also, as they're choosing the strips, they're thinking about their audience. And so that became very much an issue when uh, people were trying to get their strips syndicated, and so what what they were looking for. And a lot of um, female artists said that they would the editors would say, "Oh, we already have a woman, female strip," you know. And so that was very much an issue. It was a very conservative landscape, and so the the context really does have an impact. It frames the narrative and what they can and can't say. And some of the strips were on the editorial pages. And that, of course, um, is a different uh, landscape. And so they were, those strips are able to do and say different things because they are perceived of differently. And then there's the landscape of the alternative weeklies uh, with a different audience. And so all of these different um, venues, you know, these frameworks, they, they influence the comic strips. I think in general, my uh, experience of analyzing the mainstream comics pages, both I looked at one page from 1984, and then at the end of the book, I spoiler alert, um, come back, you know, 30 years later to look at a comics uh, page set of pages, and really very little had changed. There was there were still only three comics by uh, women or groups of or co-authored or groups of women, and then very little representation of diversity, people of color, LGBTQ+. It, 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 the landscape not changed very much at all, and really very conservative and very um, structured. And so I think 
that is and was a challenge for people who want to do more experimental things. And then, of course, we'll talk about, um, you know, like Nicole Hollander and Sylvia. Then there's the ones that I think, wow, how did you get away with that? How delightful it was to be pushing the boundaries. But it's definitely seen as pushing the boundaries of the mainstream newspaper. Right. And I thought, and, and I appreciated too, as we talk about these different, as we talk about the different comic strips and artists, how even if they weren't overtly feminist or overtly looking at some of these issues, you saw the ways in which they sort of push back at these um, more traditional narratives. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it, it, there were, and sometimes those brought out um, angry letters to the editor and things like that. So there were, there was pushback um, on different storylines and so forth. Mm-hmm. So let's start. You start, um, the first strip you look at is Kathy. Um, and so can you talk a little bit about the comic strip, Kathy, and um, just give us a, you know, a, a, a slight history to that comic strip um, before we get into some of the things you saw in it? Right. Uh, Kathy is, you know, is a very polarizing strip. People often, they love it or hate it. it you know, it started, I believe, 1976, uh, ended around 2010 by Kathy Geiswhite. Uh, you know, it's a story of, of Kathy and it, and she has, she has books and has said it, it sort of circles around these um, four major, what she calls guilt groups, food, love, career, and mothers. Uh, And so that's, I think, often what is associated with Kathy, you know, talking about, and there's all those stereotypes in popular, or or like, you know, people making fun of Kathy on Saturday Night Live, et cetera, about her saying ack and her trademark outfit and complaining about shoes and her weight and her relationship with her mother. So I think uh, that's often how she was known, but and we can talk more about this, but there's a lot going on in Kathy. And when I chose this strip, obviously it's a very well-known strip, but I really wanted to take a look at it to see what I could see without prejudging it and, and, and sort of coming into it. Like, I think Kathy is terrible or I love Kathy, but just kind of like reading as much as I possibly could and seeing what, what is there. And it, it was surprising to me. Yeah, and I thought there were really some really fascinating things about Kathy um, in this. And one of the things I wanted you to talk a little bit about, or I'd love to hear a little bit about, is um, how you saw this situated in the time that it was, right? So the late 70s and onward, and thinking about the women's movement and Kathy and her mother as well, and, and Kathy's sort of feminist friend, and how this sort of speaks to... Um, what was happening during the time in in our larger, you know, social and political landscape? Well, I think that's a, a, a really great question because I think these comic strips, they definitely reflect our history and they're, a, you know, a, a great source of our history and, and, and the ways in which they reflect what's going on. I, I believe, uh, along with other scholars, I think Ian Gordon has talked about this, that comics reflect our culture, but they also help shape culture. So I think when people were reading Kathy and cutting out her comic strip and putting it on their wall or their refrigerator, I mean, she's also shaping, these comic strips are shaping people's beliefs and behaviors and so forth. So uh, I think that uh, Kathy was very much um, a product of the time in that she's 
addressing, she talks about the different diet fads very specifically, but she also talks about, um, she campaigns for Dukakis. She talks about the Family Medical Leave Act, uh, and she is talking about the issues of the day. And she has a friend, um, Andrea, who she has identified as her, you know, very much her feminist friend. And then her mother is representing um, maybe a more mm, stereotypical, you know, throwback house house mom, although she dabbles in consciousness raising. But, you know, she's and then Kathy Guyswhite has talked about how Kathy is um, struggling to figure out her place. Um, in this, in this historical moment and how she feels about it and how to behave. Uh, and what is it? There's this comic strip where she says, I'm woman. I have the worst of both worlds, you know, um, and the, and the challenges. So I think she's definitely a product of that place and time and trying to figure out her place in it. And one of the other things I'd love for you to talk about, because I think it's really important to look at and think about is the, the Me Too moment that Kathy has, right? We think about, like you said, people often think about Kathy as those like four, you know, um, ideas. But I thought this was a really interesting um, space to look at and and time period during the comics to look at. I uh, absolutely agree. And I think, again, people, as you say, they think Kathy, oh, Ack and Shoes and things. But uh, there's this story arc from 1980 in which Kathy, Kathy is sexually assaulted by her boss, Mr. Pinkley. So the story is such that over several days and weeks, um, ca- uh, her car dies and Mr. Pinkley gives her a ride home. He invites himself into her apartment for a drink uh, and then he forcibly kisses her, at which point she punches him. He passes out cold and he's sort of on the floor of her apartment all night. And then uh, the next morning he wakes up, runs to the office and tells everyone he has spent the night with Kathy. And she continues going to work and fighting against these rumors, et cetera. And she talks to her friend, what should I do? And so forth. Uh, And so it's this moment, which is very topical, um, very relevant, And one of the things I think is very interesting about it is it's not anthologized. I mean, so we think about the research process and what is, what are the stories we choose to tell? One of the reasons we think about Kathy circling around these four guilt groups is because that's what the anthologies, um, you know, that's the story that they tell. So, you know, I really had to go in and find these digitized news pages and in order to reveal this story. So it's, it's definitely a, a tale of, of, you know, research as well. Um, Cause this story I think is, would be largely lost. It's, it's not remembered and it's incredibly uh, interesting and fascinating and disturbing for many reasons, uh, you know, because again, it's so topical and ultimately, you know, Kathy goes on to work with Mr. Pinkley you know, he appears at her wedding many, many years later, and 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 the re, the way she kind of counters the the um, the scandal is ultimately she kind of enlists the help of the secretary and a female network, and they sort of have a whisper campaign to tell the truth, um, and then that storyline is dropped, and they go on to other things. But uh, it's a really powerful moment in the in the strip. 
that's very reflective of the culture then and now. And I think it's important that as researchers, we look at the whole picture um, of, of those stories being told. Yeah, no, I really thought that was telling when you talked about the fact that it is not serialized, right? And the many iterations that we have of Kathy, that does not appear except for in the newspapers. Yes, I think, I mean, and comic strips are are understudied, I think, partially because they're hard to study because we don't have, I mean, we don't always have access to the materials. Sometimes we have anthologies, which is great, but sometimes we, the, the, you know, the anthologies aren't complete. You know, they tell the popular stories and so forth. So this was really difficult. And whenever possible, I would track, track down the strips from the newspaper pages. But it is painstaking, excuse me, painstaking and very difficult to find them. So it's a, it's a challenge when you're researching comic strips. You have to really love it. Yes, a lot of time in archives that, or in digital archives yep. too, that, yes. that I guess in 2021, you know, or even prior to that, it can get exhausting to, mm-hmm. to be digital all the time. Uh, you, and then you talk, uh, a lot of the comic strips do focus on motherhood. So um, one of them probably the, in most visible or famous is for better or for worse. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that um, sort of setting up for better or for worse and the background of that? Yes, absolutely. I think uh, For Better or For Worse is, is largely, I would say, beloved series. Uh, ran from 1979 to 2008. She did a brief, uh, Lynn Johnston did a brief sort of restart where she restarted the comics for a while, going back to the beginning for a couple of years. But in general, active around 79 to 2008. And it's a story, um, the Patterson family and Mother Ellie is the main figure uh, Lynn Johnston, again, this was a, a really long-running, fascinating strip. Uh, Johnston's work is absolutely gorgeous, and uh, you're talking about archives. I had an opportunity to go see some of her original art at the Billy Ireland Museum, and it's just so, so amazing. Her art um, is fantastic to see all the details she puts into these strips. Uh, but, it, I mean, the, the strip is, I think, remarkable for its longevity, and following this family, not exactly in real time, but following them as they evolve. And really the center of the family is Ellie Patterson. And in the beginning stages, she has young children. And and through time, um, they grow up and get married and have children of their own. And so my focus was, you know, primarily looking at these early years. And there are some, you know, uh, outstanding uh, storylines. Again, I'm, I'm hoping to inspire lots of, you know, more research on, on the, on her dog Farley. I mean, he's a hero. I mean, who doesn't love Farley the dog? And then there's, um, Lawrence's, um, coming out storyline, which had, you know, a profound influence at the time, um, and today. Um, and so really interesting storylines, but I was focusing primarily looking at Ellie, uh, Patterson. And I think that, that strip, I think, was really interesting in the ways that it dismantled these notions of idealized motherhood, uh, because Ellie yelled at her kids. She felt bad about it. She argued with her husband, um, and they have several strips where he's at work imagining her with this, you know, wonderful life with the kids, and she's imagining him just relaxing at work. And, you know, I think it it sort of dismantled and challenged the notions of that, you know, idealized beatific motherhood. And I, I think that, you know, it's really powerful to see um, 
someone who isn't happy all the time, who wants to go back to work, isn't appreciated by her family, and sometimes yells at her kids and makes mistakes. Uh, And so I think that um, really forges a connection with the audience and helps, you know, as I said, dismantle those kind of ideas of this is what a mother is and or should be. No, I have to say, reading this chapter, this is one of those comics that I remember reading when I was right, even preteen, and um, probably thinking it was funny, and then reading it as a mother and older, right, thinking, yeah, there's some of this, like, yeah, I get that, right? I get the whole, like, the kid runs off crying and screaming, and you're like, I could have handled that better, Um mm-hmm. And, you know, that kind of thing. So I really appreciated that look or thinking about like what you're talking about, that um, that motherhood is messy. Right. And having a career or not having a career is like all those things are kind of messy and how that sort of plays out. And I also thought it was interesting. um, And you you talk about this in a number of how the life of the artist um, sort of impacts and influence the comic strip. Right. Mm -hmm. And so there was a bit of this. Um, with with Lynn Johnson's work here and with For Better, For Worse, where it sort of um, imitates, life imitating art. And can you talk a little bit about how you saw that in some of these comic strips? You know, it's, it's tricky because I think, you know, I was trained in, you know, literary theory and I, you know, this idea of not um, trying to create the author or, you know, you know, use their biography to read the comics. And yet when you have comics like Kathy, where it's named Kathy and the author is Kathy guys white. And I think Lynn Johnston has spoken pretty openly about how her children inspire, you know, these, these, you know, stories about being a mom and so forth. It was very much inspired by her life. Um, So it was a little bit tricky because I didn't want to, you know, make too many assumptions, but I tried to, when I, um, you know, talked about their biography work from the, what they'd actually said. So I think that, you know, about their lives and how they impacted, you know, I think, you know, she's talked about how, um, when she split up with her first husband and was a single parent for some time, uh, and then she remarried and was trying to work as a, you know, cartoonist as well as raising a family, that was a real challenge. And she's talked about how, uh, a lot of the stories came out of her life. On the other hand, she also tried to create some distance by changing the ages of the kids and letting her kids grow up and kept her kids the same age. Um, but she has talked openly about struggles. Lynn Johnston has spoken about struggles in her own childhood uh, with her own parents, as well as the challenges of balancing a career and family pretty openly and how that definitely um, worked its way into the, into the strip. Um, and I think there is a, uh, how do I say, a, you know, there's an emotional connection that people feel there's an authenticity that resonates. Um, even though we know that these are fictional characters, I think there is definitely an authenticity of experience that shines through in these strips. And it's, so you move from sort of this family to looking at um, someone who. Uh, Linda Berry and Linda Berry's work, who is wide and varied, um, but you focus on her girls and boys strip. So can you talk a little bit about Linda Berry and then why you chose to focus on that, um, that comic strip as opposed to some of the others that are pretty famous? 
Well, I have to talk about Linda Berry because I'm obsessed. No, um, because I've written about Linda Berry, but also because um, her comic strip, you know, the the long running series, Ernie Pook's Kamik, um, you know, was really influential. And, and again, it was in an alternative weekly uh, as opposed to the mainstream papers. Um, and it ran from around 1979 to 2008. And in these really early years, the ones that are collected in Girls and Boys, it's not, I think, representative of what people think of as Linda Berry, because usually she is known for her childhood stories, um, for Marlis and and this recurring cast of kids. But in the very early days, she uh, was focusing on sort of this sort of relationships and sex and sexuality and dating. And um, it's very interesting to me in that it, it was very much, I think, a part of this punk feeling, this, you know, this... Uh, DIY aesthetic and, you know, inviting readers to participate and making meeting. And it was very, um, in some ways, kind of an insular, isolated community because you, while you see like dating and relationships reflected, you don't see history or news or talk about the Family Medical Leave Act or anything like that. Um, it's It's more about the foibles of dating. And so it's this kind of interesting moment in her career uh, as opposed to all these childhood strips, which are, again, absolutely fascinating, these childhood stories. But um, it's it's such an interesting example of like this punk aesthetic, which I think is really interesting um, and the ways in which it's very different from these other strips. What I also found really interesting about um, this chapter and sort of what you looked at is how text heavy a lot of it is, right? Um, and how much the, you know, in some of these, the figures are, are very static, right? Um, and not all of them, but, and that it's much more about, you know, text and what happens around the text than the image itself. Yes, she's a, well... Linda Berry is amazing. I mean, she's, you know, written novels, she's written plays, she is a great writer of text, absolutely. And her work is known for being very text heavy. And when you look at the panels, I mean, sometimes it's usually at least a half of each panel is text. Sometimes it's two thirds, and it's just kind of scrunching down the figures at the very bottom of the panel. And she's very, very text heavy. And that is her, um, just that's her way. I I believe, and I, I'm paraphrasing, but I, I, she sort of told a story about working on a comic for an anthology with Art Spiegelman, and he said something about asking, you know, could you just, you know, lighten up on the text? She's like, no, this is my thing. So I apologize for paraphrasing, but that's that's her way of being, and it's it's very text heavy, very static. The figures are very stylized. That sort of flattened appearance. Um, and over time, her style definitely changes and evolves. Well, you know, it's always changing, you know, because, you know, then it becomes collage and so forth. But I, it's a very much a, a, a strip or, a, you know, collection of strips of a certain place in time, of a particular moment um, in her career. Mm-hmm. Um, and so from her, you move into looking at Sylvia and Nicole Hollander and can you, who, you know, it's very interesting too how you see and you talk about some of the ways in which these women have influenced one another um, throughout their work, right? 
um, partly probably because there are so few women uh-huh. in the, you know in comics and in comic strips. So can you talk a bit about like the Sylvia and the genesis of Sylvia and Hollander's work? Yes, I you know Nicole Hollander and Sylvia. I believe it ran about 1981 to 2012. And as I said earlier, you know Sylvia is fascinating to me because she said you know she was talking about. Um, you know, colonoscopies and things in the mainstream pa- newspaper pages. And I, she just was fascinating to me. The, the thing she said, as a child, I didn't really get Sylvia. This is the one where as a kid, I would read it and say, huh. But now as an adult, I find it really, really funny. Uh, so Sylvia, you know, she had her, you know, start in the feminist uh, newspapers and then eventually was syndicated. Uh, and as you mentioned, you know, in terms of the community, I was lucky enough to, again, I was at the Billy Ireland, their archives, they have all of Nicole Hollander's papers. uh, And I was able to, you know, look at her letters. And she had quite a few letters to different um, female comics artists like Linda Berry, and they would encourage each other and talk about contracts, and, you know, syndication and other things. And it was really wonderful to me to see the story behind the pages and see that kind of sense of community that existed, um, you know, behind the pages. Now, you know, within the pages, I think Sylvia, you know, is really interesting in that um, she was so witty. The, The character of Sylvia, you know, most folks know of the, she's, you know, in profile in her bathtub, um, pontificating on the events of the day, incredibly topical, inc- incredibly witty. And she's sort of lampooning all these, you know, political figures and, and moments and things. And uh, it's just uh, amazing what she got away with. But this the satire, I think, was biting. I think, as I, again, I was reading it, I thought these would not be out of place today. You might change the names of a few politicians here and there. But uh, unfortunately, a lot of the same issues are very much in evidence today. But um, she, I think, was, you know, biting and satirical and poking fun. And I think a lot of people found her kind of caustic. But, you know, I think she was doing it from a place of love in order to encourage people to be better, you know. So I think satire in the goal of changing things for the better yeah and there are two well there's many but there's two things that i thought um i really appreciated in this thinking about this chapter and and what you're doing in this work and one um within the chapters you talk when you can about how the characters were drawn and i love the fact that Holland, at one point she's based i'll paraphrase too she basically says i drew the nose right once and i never i knew i could never do it again but i didn't have to right Um, And you talk a little bit about how they have done these drawings and how they continue or how that sort of has changed over time. So I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Sylvia did not change very much. She would change a hat. She would change maybe, you know, an accessory. But for the most part, she stayed the same and, and you know, Hollander joked that she, as you say, drew her once, then just copied the profile and changed it slightly. Um, but but she was, you know, stalwart in her flamboyance and her um, appearance. And 
And there was, I think, I don't know if the word is comfort in that, but, you know, we, you know, we came to expect things from Sylvia. Um, and, and, and again, it was about, it became about the accessories and the, you know, the, the flamboyant fun of the strip. And another thing that I think is really interesting, especially when you think about these comic strips in the newspaper, right? In newspapers, as opposed to just on their own. And you do this in a couple of chapters, but I love the, the douche, um, like, can it douche make you feel more confident? You know, not like the stock portfolio. Um, but that idea of looking at also the reaction um, in the, out to the strip by people sending in letters, you know, to the newspapers. And so you have that, I'm looking at the image you have that, you know, of that published originally in the paper was sort of the letter to the editor. Yes. I enjoy uh, very much again, thinking about the, the context of these uh, strips. And I think most of the um, artists talk about pushback or um, bad mail, et cetera, about various strips, you know, um, Lynn Johnston talked about pushback about various storylines, but you know, the Lawrence uh, storyline and um, Kathy got, she got pulled off the, you know, the pulled out of the newspapers um, and a lot of criticism when she was actively campaigning for Dukakis now. And then, uh, you know, Hollander, you know, I believe revels in this uh, hate mail or, you know, negative press. I think she delights in it. And, um, Want, and, and features some of that in her anthologized collections. Like, look at this terrible mail I got. I love it, you know? Um, and people would say that she was offensive and she shouldn't talk about, you know, colonoscopies or douches. But she, um, I think, really enjoyed enjoyed it. It made, you know, people were paying attention. And I think she felt like, yeah, if I'm offending people, they're paying attention and they're thinking and that's fantastic. Uh, but I think, again, as we look at the history, I, I, you know, it's thinking about the reaction. And I think the newspaper is that forum where people can uh, write a letter and, and have it published alongside the comic strip. And there's that um, exchange of ideas and that communication, which I think is really important in thinking about comic strips because they're part of the community. Um, and then it, you you move from sort of Sylvia to probably arguably the most um, outside of comic strips, right? Be the most well known um, of these women, um, Alison Bestel, but not um, but looking at Dykes to watch out for, as opposed to looking at her graphic novels and what she's done there. Um, and so, can you talk a little bit about her work? as a comic strip artist, um, as opposed to a graphic novel, you know, a, a, a memoirist and graphic novelist. Yes. I think, you know, Alison Bechtel is, uh, you know, obviously, as you said, she's very famous for her graphic memoirs and they are masterworks and there's, you know, no two ways about it They're, You know, I really enjoy her work, but I have to admit, I really, I think, I think her comic strip Dykes to Watch Out For doesn't get enough critical attention um, because it is um, so accomplished. It is it is so as as with her other works, but it's literary, but and literate and also a lot of fun and has a lot of heart. And you get to see she creates this community over years and years and. 
I think that it it is unfortunately not as um, studied or well read. Uh, it appeared, you know, in alternative weeklies um, every other week, and so it didn't perhaps get as much attention. But the things that you love about her <laughs> memoirs, you know, that art, the outstanding art. Um, all of the little details, you know, book titles and all of these little in-jokes. And um, it's all there. And it's also with this uh, really fantastic cast of characters, which, and that continuing storyline that just keeps going and going and you get invested in the characters. So um, I think Dykes to Watch Out For is a, you know, it's a real gem. And I encourage people to uh, to seek it out. Well, and and I think that one of the interesting in the this chapter and the chapter after that um, goes back to that um, not only comic strips, not only sort of marginalizing women, but also LGBTQ plus um, people of color, right? And so, Dykes to watch out for also really pushes against some of the some of the issues in the LGBTQ plus community, um, thinking about like politics and um, gender and gender fluidity um, and really grappling with those issues as well, which I think is really great. Yes. I think that uh, in these comic strips through these characters, um, they have these conversations uh, about, as you say, gender identity, fluidity. And, and I think chips away at sort of monolithic dominant narratives about lesbian culture or, or you know it it's um and i think she talks about this uh Bechtel in the opening of the she has a anthology the essential dykes to watch out for and she said i i wrote these you know and i wanted to know what is the essential nature of you know being a lesbian and, and as she was writing the strip she really discovered it, it there is not a unifying you know, dominant way of being. And there's these messy, awkward conversations amongst the characters, um, you know, where one of them is saying, oh, well, you can't be a Republican and be LGBTQ plus, you know, and someone's saying, well, why not? And, or um, at one point, Mo, one of the, probably she's the main character is setting up a book series at the bookstore where she works and she's like oh well I don't know if I should have you know what about you know trans people and and what about this and she's asking these questions and you know people are challenging her and it's a really rich conversation I think and over time as you watch the comic strip unfold the conversation becomes more and more diverse um and they're you know what was it you know there's just all you know, there's these characters representing all kinds of positions. Some are conservative, some are liberal. Um, you have, you know, this delightful community asking difficult questions uh, and inviting the readers to participate. Um, and so the, you, right after that, right, your next chapter then looks at Barbara Brandon Croft's work, Where I'm Coming From. And I think um, she's a stellar comic strip artist to... Um, has been, you know, the first of many, uh, you know, the first, her father and her were the first um, father-daughter comic strip um, to both have comic strips in uh, mainstream syndication. Um, so can you talk a little bit about her, who she is, and then sort of the work that she's done? Yes, again, this is another uh, 
comics artist, I think, that is not recognized and really needs to be. We deserve so much more attention. Um, she created uh, Where I'm Coming From, the um, comic strip ran in syndication from 1989 to 2005. Um, as he said, her father was almost also a comics artist. Um, and I, and as you say, the first sort of father son team or not, they weren't you know working as a team. They had their own individual strips in syndication. Uh, and her work appeared, um, on the editorial pages. It was not a traditional strip in terms of the four panel or three panel structure. You know, it was like one wide panel with these different faces in conversation with one another. Uh, and so it, it's, I find it interesting because, again, in terms of that landscape, the context, it's on the editorial pages. So people are going to read it differently and um, frame it differently. Oh, okay, this isn't, you know, necessarily comics funny. This is, you know, uh, on the editorial opinion pages. Um, so there was, you know, that framework. And, it, you know, it was a great strip. Again, it's tackling with these questions, tackling these questions, you know, about, um, race and class and gender and doing so in the mainstream newspaper. She also got, um, as she talked about, you know, obviously racism at work. And there's one strip that I mentioned in the book where the character is talking about, can I be you know, black and a feminist? And these challenging these articulations of, you know, feminism and racism and the racism within the feminist movement and uh, asking really important questions. And again, um, we don't get to talk enough about this comic strip. And again, one of the challenges is it's hard to find. Um, it's in a few anthologies, but um, they're out of print. Um, and so you end up working very hard to track it down. And I would like to see it really everywhere. <laughs> no, I mean, I thought even like the, uh, this is another one where I really appreciated sort of the letters to the editor kind of piece. And, and there was this piece about um, the character with the boss and the, you know, reading a history book and the boss is sort of like, you know, Black History Month is over, like women's history month is, you know, like, why are you reading that history book? You know, we don't need that. And then that letter to the editor, that was sort of like, why are we reading, you know, we don't need to read these books. Um, so I thought that that was really telling and poignant, especially considering that was 1992 and that kind of thing still happens in 2021. Right. I mean, uh, yeah, it's, uh, not that, long ago and as you say still obviously very much an issue and i was i you know found the comics and then i was looking for the reception and i tracked down some letters to the editor uh and it as you say that it's very sad and poignant when the comics are addressing racism and her experience at the workplace where her boss is challenging her the the character saying you know why are you reading about Black History? Why do we have to have a Black History Month? And then you have all these letters to the editor in which they're saying, you know, that she is, the, the artist, Brandon Croft, is racist and, you know, and, and they just don't get it <laughs> at all and exhibiting even more racism in their letters. And it's it's discouraging and it, it's poignant. And yet it's part of the history that I thought it was important to discuss that these 
strips sparked a conversation uh, in people, and they felt compelled to write in and say nasty things about her. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you sort of come back around and end with um, coming into Jan Elliott and looking at Stone Soup and, and really how um, Stone Soup is a really strong um, feminist comic. Um, but so can you talk a little bit about um, how you sort of bring everything together and, and what Stone Soup is sort of how you why you end with Stone Soup? Right. Well, Jan Elliott um, created Stone Soup. It actually existed in other forms for, you know, a bit before 1995, but it was one of the later strips to come out. And it also was the the last one really to end. It ended in 2020 when I was finishing the book. And so I thought it was a nice way to bring the the book to a, a close. And it was one of the, the strip that was very directly feminist in which the characters talk about feminism as... I, I, actually, Sylvia is also very overtly feminist, but this was a, a feminism that was part of a family, and it was very much ordinary, and it was part of their conversation. It was uh, just a part of the strip. It was it presented it as the logical way of being in the world, uh, and you know, ended, strip ended in twenty twenty, and I think it was an occasion for me and also I, I read, you know, Jen Elliott reflecting on the end of, you know, the legacy of Stone Soup and thinking about, well, what what has changed and what where are we at this point? And unfortunately, um, I think that very mu- very little has changed for, since the beginning of my study and the ending of Stone Soup. Uh, that, you know, when I look at the comics pages, you know, there are very few females, very few creators of color or LGBTQ plus creators and also characters. Um, it, not much has changed. As you say, the uh, newspaper pages are very uh, conservative, um, even even now. Um, and so as you bring this all together, we've been talking for a while. And so do you, are you working on, you know, you talk about how this is just sort of the beginning. Uh, is there anything you're working on now to continue this or are you just on a whole new project or are you just taking a break or where are you at now? Well, I, I am very lucky because I, I, I feel spoiled because I love what I do and I love comic books and I love comic strips. Uh, I love teaching comics. So I'm usually doing about 10 different projects at once. So, um, so because I love what I do, uh, and, uh, I, you know, I'm the director of comic studies at Portland state. So I'm working on programming and developing that program. And I work at, as one of the associate editors at inks, the journal of the comic study society. Um, I want to work on a project on Ms. Marvel and another, uh, comics pedagogy. I'm interested in how we teach with comics. Um, so I'm working on another project there, um, and my heart will always be, you know, looking at um, feminist comics and and comic strips. So I am working on all kinds of projects um, again because I really love reading comics and talking about them with interesting people like you. And so uh, it's just so much fun for me. I have a job I really enjoy. So uh, I am just keeping busy with um, all kinds of projects in this vein. Right. Great. Well, again, we've been talking for a while, so it's been really great talking with you again. This was Susan Curley, who is the author of Typical Girls, The Rhetoric of Womanhood in Comic Strips. Um, Thanks for talking with me on New Books Network, New Books in Popular Culture.
Thank you so much for having me.